Welcome to Living with COVID-19, brought to you by A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. Today, we're going to be continuing a series called An Encouraging Word for Discouraging Times. This is a series that I preached several years ago out of 1 Peter. It was written for people who were going through difficult and hard times much as what we're experiencing during this time of COVID-19. So I hope these messages will be an encouragement to you. Open your Bible. Let's listen to God's Word together. Lord Jesus, indeed, how marvelous is your love for us. We realize that you alone bore our sins in your own body. How you could love us, sinners born in rebellion against you, indeed is marvelous. May we reflect on your greatness. May we reflect on that marvelous love, amazing love. And as we see your love for us, Father and Lord Jesus, our hearts respond in love back to you. Your word says not that we first loved you, but that you loved us and gave your son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Fill our hearts with your love, Father. We might respond in obedience to you, to your word you might be glorified in our lives. As we turn our attention to your word now, I confess my total dependence on you to minister your life, Lord Jesus, through your word. I know nothing I say will have any effect unless your spirit anoints it and ministers it to our lives. So we look to you in total and utter dependence and also in faith believing that your word will not go out without accomplishing what you desire for it to accomplish. Open up our minds, our hearts, and our spirits to your word. Give us attentive spirits, Father. Pay attention. Your word is proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We're continuing our study of First Peter. We're looking at encouraging words for discouraging times. And we have seen that there is indeed comfort in our adversity in knowing who we are. And last week, we looked at who we were, and we saw that Peter says that we are living stones in a building in which Jesus is the cornerstone. And that you and I as living stones, as Christians, are a holy priesthood, a chosen race. We are the new Israel. We are God's treasures. And our purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of God. That's what we're to do, to proclaim His gracious dealings, to proclaim 
His divine character, to proclaim what He has done for us and in us. Now, today we're going to start asking the question and answering it. Well, how do we proclaim His excellencies? That's what He's called us to do. Well, how do we do that? Well, our passage today that we're going to be looking at is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to be looking in great detail at verses 11 and 12. We're going to unpack these verses and begin to answer the question, how do we fulfill our purpose of proclaiming His excellencies? Now, in order to catch the flow of the passage, let's begin in verse 9, and I will read through verse 12. In respect for the Word of God, let me ask you to stand. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, with the purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. But keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. You may be seated. And may God bless the reading and the hearing and most of all the obeying of His Word. How do we proclaim God's excellencies? That's the question that we're considering. We do so by living a godly life before others. As they see our godly life we are speaking forth His excellencies. Now, in particular, it seems that Peter says there's one area that we especially proclaim loudly, even shout God's excellencies, and that is when we live in submission to ungodly authorities. What Peter is telling us here is that your lifestyle evangelism is more powerful than simply to give a verbal witness. Now, the verbal witness is important. We know that. You must proclaim the gospel. We saw that the Word of God is the seed that brings about the new birth. So you must proclaim the Word. It's not an either or. It's a both and. But your lifestyle must be laid forth before people before you can proclaim with effectiveness. As we used to say, if you don't walk the walk, don't talk the talk. But if you're going to talk the talk, walk the walk. Particularly in our day, people want to see it and see if you're authentic. They want to see your life. That's why relational evangelism seems to be the most effective means of evangelism in our day because people want to see it lived out. They want to see a difference in your life. And then they are ready to listen to what you have to say. And this is what Peter's saying. He's saying God's called you to proclaim 
His excellencies. And the way you do that is by keeping your behavior excellent among the unbelievers and particularly when you submit to ungodly authorities. All right, let's get the big picture that we'll be spending several weeks on. Get that before you. All right, the big picture. First, the purpose. Your purpose as a Christian is to proclaim the excellencies of God, to proclaim God's greatness and His blessings. That's the purpose. Now, what's the principle? The principle is to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, to keep your life excellent, to live a good and godly life before people. That's the principle. Now, what are the particulars that Peter's going to be talking about? He says, particularly in submission to godless government. We're going to see that next week. Next, submission to bad bosses, verses 18 through 20. He give, uh, then he gives us the example of Christ and his submission to ungodly authorities. And then finally, in chapter 3, he says submission to mean mates. When we submit to ungodly authority, it shouts the greatness of God. Why is that? Because we live in a rebellious, ungodly society. And every society, for that matter, has rebellion in its heart because we're born with rebellion in our hearts. Satan's first sin was rebellion against God. And we're born as rebels. We want our own way. It is not natural for us to submit to authority. Our willfulness, our selfishness wants what we want. And so it is normal to expect an unbeliever to rebel against authorities at home and at work and at school and wherever else you might find them. Now, they may be subtle about how they do it. They won't take up arms against the government, but they'll fudge on their taxes or, you know, they'll do some other little things, maybe go over the speed limit and some other things. Oh, me. But nevertheless, there is that resistance to God-given authorities. Well, when Christians submit to ungodly authorities... How much more does that shout to the world? Something's different about this person. Everybody else at work is griping about the boss. Yeah, he's a mean boss. Everybody else is griping about him, but this guy is showing the perfect attitude. He's being polite. He's being courteous. He's doing his work. He's not grumbling. He's not complaining. Something's different about this guy. What is it? And so Peter tells us that if you really want to shout the excellencies of God, then keep your behavior excellent in the view of people, and in particular keep your excellent behavior and make it evident as you submit to ungodly authorities. Now, it's, let's face it, it's not the most difficult thing in the world to submit to a godly authority. You know, it's something even secure about that. There's some protection. It's the ungodly people that we have difficulty, particular difficulty. And so it is at this point. You see, darkness refuses, it resists, it rebels against authority, but light submits and welcomes and honors and respects authority, even ungodly authorities. Now, this is so important. I think this is one of the keys to understanding adversity you experience in your life. I believe God 
many times brings adversity in our life to bring us under submission to authority. You know, it's like the kid, the teenager, who in rebellion to his parents leaves home and joins the Marines. Now, does that make sense? Huh? Ted, does that make sense? I mean, he's rebelled again. He doesn't like the authority of his home, and so he goes and joins the Marines where it's even more authority. But you see, God uses adversity to show us when we are out from under authority and to help bring us back. Adversity is to teach us submission. Now, let's look at the principle today, and then we'll begin looking at the particulars next week. The principle. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. First thing he says, you must know who you are. Again, in verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as alien and strangers. Aliens and strangers. Three things that Peter says to remind who they are. First, he calls them beloved or beloved. Now, this is more than simply a term of endearment. I believe he is reminding them of God's love for them. He says, I want you to know that God loves you. As a Christian, as one of God's chosen ones, he has a special love for you. Well, how much does God love us? Well, I think it's interesting that God uses this term beloved to speak about his own son, Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, at Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven said, This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So God called Jesus his beloved son. Beloved. And now Peter is saying that these Christians are beloved. He is using the same word. I think what he's saying is, is that God loves us as much as he loves Jesus. 1 John 3, 1. John says, see what kind of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and as such we are. You say, but preaching, that doesn't say he loves me as much as he loves Jesus. That just says he calls me one of his children. Well, you could argue that. But let me show you one other verse you can't argue. John 17. This is the Lord Jesus himself. Speaking in his prayer in John 17, 23. Listen, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, look at these words, even as you loved me. Jesus said that. Even as you love me. Now think about this for a moment, folks. 
Jesus, if you're a Christian, Jesus loves you. Excuse me. God loves you as much as he loved Jesus. As much. Every bit as much. Not a bit less. Now, that's amazing on many levels. <laughs> you know, it's one thing because Jesus was perfect. Okay? So, you know, it's not that hard to love somebody who's perfect, I guess. But I'm not perfect. But even with my sin... Jesus said that God the Father loves me as much as He loved Him, His perfect Son. I would encourage you just to take some time today to dwell on that thought. Just say, God, You love me as much as You love Jesus. Your unique Son. And you know what that does for me? It makes me want to love Him more. I mean, our heart responds to God's love. And that's the great deterrent from sin. That's your biggest motive, your greatest motive to living a holy life is because God loves you so much. And because He loves you so much, it hurts Him when you don't live godly before unbelievers. So that's our greatest reason for living and keeping our behavior excellent before the world because God loves us so much. So that's the first thing Peter says. Know who you are. You're loved. He says, Beloved, I urge you. Now the word urge is the word that can be translated exhort. It can be translated encourage. It's the parakaleo, the word that's used to speak of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. It means literally to come to be called alongside someone. And it's to be called alongside someone for the purpose of either defending them as their advocate or encouraging them or comforting them or maybe admonishing them, giving them a kick in the seat of the britches. So Peter's saying, hey guys, I exhort you, I encourage you, I admonish you now as Aliens, remember who you are, he says, aliens. Now let's look at this word aliens for a moment, because you and I think of uh, E.T. and other things. But actually the word alien is made up of the Greek word prohorikos, which basically the para means beside, parallel lines, and horikos is the word for house. So it means someone who lives somewhere without the right of citizenship. That's what it means. And so Peter's saying, hey guys, remember, your citizenship is not here on earth, is it? Your true citizenship is in heaven. You know, it's like an ambassador that lives in a foreign country. He lives in that country, but his citizenship is still in the U.S. of A. It's like a missionary who is from the United States, but he'd be, he's living in a foreign country. Now, he's living there, but he doesn't have the rights of citizenship. And that's the way it is, Peter says, with us. We are, first of all, aliens. We live in this world, but we are not of this world. Our true citizenship is in heaven. It's like we're on a royal mission as ambassadors for Christ. Therefore, we should live differently because our citizenship is not in this world. And then he says, strangers. Now, this is the same word he used over in verse 1 of chapter 1. 
and it's translated aliens there. But here it's translated strangers, and if you will remember from that time together, it means to live beside the people. It's someone who has moved into a foreign country and they live beside the natives. Now here I believe Peter is dealing more with the visible example. But that's what he's talking about. He's talking about what your neighbors see when they see you. It means you're living there in your neighborhood. You're living beside unbelievers. And you are in clear view. They see how you come in at night. They can hear things you're saying in your backyard. They see how you conduct yourself with your family. They see you. They know you. And this is the idea he's approaching when he uses the term strangers. So we have two additional motives here for keeping our behavior excellent before the Gentiles. He's basically saying, look, guys, not only are you loved of God and He loves you as much as He loves Jesus, but He's called you to live here on this earth, though your citizenship is in heaven. He's called you to live beside the people so they see clear view of you. Now, therefore, keep your behavior excellent for the Gentiles. So then He says, as aliens, as those who are beloved, as strangers abstain from fleshly lust. And the word abstain means to hold yourself back from. And in the Greek, the tense is a present tense, which means it is a continual thing. That we are to constantly hold ourselves back from. It reminds me of what he said in verse 1 of this chapter where he talks about putting aside all malice, putting aside all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. You know, we talked about that kind of like stripping off old clothes. Well, here the picture is to hold yourself back, to constantly, persistently hold back. Don't give in. You see, the Christian life is not automatic. You don't become a Christian and then automatically you do everything right. And you don't have any bad desires, any bad urges. No. It is a constant struggle, folks. It is a constant battle. It calls for persistence. It calls for perseverance. It calls for being vigilant, for being constantly alert is what he's saying. He says, now, as beloved of God, as strangers and aliens, I want you to consistently continually hold yourself back from what? Fleshly lust. Now, the word flesh in the New Testament sometimes and usually has to do with the old sin nature, we call it. That old sin nature is that part of us that wants to do wrong. We're born with it. You don't have to teach kids to do wrong. They will do wrong if you just let them do what they want to do. You have to teach them to do right. That's because there is a sin nature there. And the fleshly lust, lust is a strong desire. We interpret it usually as a strong sexual desire, but in the New Testament it can be any strong passion, strong desire. So he's talking about all the strong desires and passions of our sin nature. Now, if you want to know what those are, some of those are. Galatians 5 makes those clear. 
when he says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. See, the word flesh, sin nature. Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, excuse me, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. Now, he adds the things like this because he don't want you to think this is an exhaustive list, and he's covered everything. But we are to hold back constantly from these strong desires and passions of our old sin nature. Now, notice what he says about them. Which wage war against the soul. Again, the term wage war could probably be better translated wage and carry on a campaign. Sometimes we think of a war as being just, you know, one battle. But he's talking about many, many battles. It's not just one fight. It's not just one battle. But the old sin nature wages a campaign of continual battles against our flesh. In fact, the word war, we get our English word from the Greek word, English word strategy. The old sin nature was defeated, but it was not destroyed. Its power over you has been broken as a Christian, but it's still around and it still strategizes and makes war against your soul. Now, your soul basically is your mind, will, and emotions. That's where the battle is. He's saying you've got to hold back. You've got to not give in to these strong demands, these strong lusts of your sin nature that attack your mind, your will, and your emotions. Now, this is the way I picture it. Before you're a Christian, your old sin nature and your soul are working together, man. They're in, they're in concert, you know. The evil desires and your mind, your will, your emotions are all just working together. But then you become a believer and your soul now is brought under your spirit that's been renewed by God. Well, the old sin nature doesn't take kindly to that, so he begins to wage war against your soul and spirit. And he begins to wage war by seeking to make demands on you strong desires for these fleshly sins. Now, just for example, and it seems that we all are wage war more with one or two of these than others. Not everybody wages war with immorality, but some people do. Not everybody wages war with envy, but some people do. Not everybody wages war with strife. But you see, you can probably find one or two of those that you particularly wage a lot of wars with. All right, here's the picture. When you become a Christian, your soul has become redeemed, regenerated. It becomes under the power of Christ, the Holy Spirit, and your spirit. The old sin nature doesn't like that. And so the old sin nature makes demands. It stirs up in your mind, in your will, in your emotions, all of these feelings of, of impurity or uh, enmity or strife or jealousy. And you've got to hold back and say, no, no. I'm holding back. I'm not going to do this. Say, for instance, envy. You're a Christian 
And that envy wants to hit your mind. It wants to hit your emotions and get you envious of what other people have. And you fight it and you fight it and you say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to hold back. I'm going to abstain. I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to be envious. And you constantly struggle and fight against those fleshly lusts that wage war. It is a battle. It is a war. That's one of the reasons the Christian life is so exhausting sometimes. But don't despair. God has done some things to help us in our war. And let me just look at these quickly. Number one, He has broken the power of sin over you. Now, before you became a Christian, you didn't have a choice. You had to give in to the demands of the sin nature. But what Christ did when He died for you, He broke the power of the old sin nature over your life. Now, we see this over in Romans chapter 6. Knowing this, that our old self, that's an old sin nature, was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin, the old sin nature, might be done away with. And that word done away means to render powerless so that we no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, you don't have to give into it anymore. For he who has died is freed from sin. By the power of God, you now can say no to those demands, those passions, those strong desires of the sin nature. That's why Paul can, Peter can say abstain from it, hold back from it. Because you can now that you're a Christian. God's broken the power over you. Secondly, He's given us His Word to renew our mind. Now where is the battle? Where is the war waged? In your soul. Mind, will, and emotions. So first, He's broken the power so you can say no. Next, He's given you something to renew your mind. And that is the Scripture. That is the Word of God. As we see over in Ephesians 4, verse 23, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. And so he's given us the word of God to renew our mind, to help us in this battle. What about our emotions? He's given us the fruit of the spirit. And one of the parts of the fruit of the spirit is self-control. So that we can control our emotions and we don't have to give in to them. Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So He's given the Scriptures for your mind. He's given the fruit of the Spirit for your emotions. What about your will? Well, Philippians tells us, chapter 2, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He even gives us the desire to say no. He even gives us the desire to hold back and not give in to the fleshly desires that wage war against our soul. So He's done everything you need to hold back. You just need to avail yourself of what He has already done through the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit to abstain, hold back, from these fleshly lusts. All right, let me summarize for you. Now, basically, he's saying, as the beloved of God, who are on a royal assignment and live in view of unbelievers, 
We are to show forth God's excellencies by continually and persistently holding back from giving in to those strong lusts of our sin nature that continually wage war with our mind, will, and emotions. That's it in a nutshell. Then we move on to the next verse, verse 12, because basically he's saying if as you're doing that, as you are holding back, you're keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now, see the word behavior? That's an interesting word. You can tell I love to get into these Greek words because they have such beautiful word pictures. Now, this Greek word literally means to steer again. It's a picture of a, a helmsman of a ship or the pilot of a ship. And he's steering the boat. That's the word picture here. He basically says that a person is pictured as a ship. And when you become a Christian, guess what? You change course. You need to steer again in a different direction. You become a Christian, you need to set a different course for your life. That's what he's talking about. Keep your behavior. Keep your course excellent, straight. And what do you set your course by? The Word of God. The ancient mariner used to find the North Star. That was his point of reference. He set his direction and course based on the North Star. We set our course based on the Word of God. So as a Christian, as one who's beloved of God, he says, steer your life, set your course, plot a new direction in line with the Word of God. And as you do this, you will be abstaining from fleshly lust that are waging war against your soul. Then he says, excellent. Keep your behavior excellent. Now, this is a very rich word in the Greek. It can mean beautiful. It can mean profitable. It can mean honorable. It can mean virtuous. It can mean attractive. Now, it's used to speak of outer goodness that strikes the eye. There's a different Greek, another Greek word that you would use for inner beauty. This word is particularly used for outward beauty, appearance. Now, why does he use that word rather than inner beauty? Well, what's he talking about? He's talking about living your witness in front of people, living so people can see you. So he's going to use this word. He said, I want you to have behavior that when people see it, they say, my, that's good. Man, that's excellent. That's honorable. That is beautiful behavior. That's virtuous. That's attractive behavior. All right, what's he saying now? Let's summarize again. He's saying, give that powerful living witness that is the new direction of your life, which is one of holding back from fleshly lust because you've set a new course that's in line with God's Word so that your life is a beautiful, visible expression of God's excellencies to unbelievers. Right? Then he goes on to say, The result will be that in the thing in which they slander you, guess what? They'll end up seeing your good behavior and end up glorifying God in the day of visitation. You see, their slanderous remarks will be silenced as they see your excellent behavior. The word slander means to speak down, to speak against, to criticize you adversely. Now, Probably if you've been living your Christian life in front of the world, you've been slandered. They have said things about you. 
They love to call us Pharisees. They love to say we're self-righteous if we don't indulge in sinful behavior. Even though we might not say a word to them, we just don't do it. And they say, you're just being self-righteous. Oh, we're accused of being hypocrites, whatever. But there's no different back in Peter's day. Christians were being slandered and called evil doers. But look what he says. As you keep your behavior excellent, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them. And this word observe means to gaze intently. Observe, look closely. Not just a glance. It's to gaze. As they gaze at your life. And earlier this morning at, at our breakfast honoring Butch and Lanita, people talked about observing their lives. People do look at us, don't they? They read us before they read the Bible if they're not Christians. This is what he's talking about. As they observe your excellent life, as they observe your good deeds, as they observe your virtuous deeds, same word for good that we saw earlier, beautiful. As they observe your beautiful deeds, your profitable deeds, your honorable deeds, your beautiful works, Some of them will become Christians and glorify God in the day they are saved. That's what he's saying. That's the day of visitation, the day the Spirit of God invades their lives and they experience a new birth. I think that's exactly what Peter is saying. And glorify God means to have a high opinion of God. It means to speak well of God. And that's our ultimate goal, isn't it? To bring glory to God. All right, let's summarize again. He's saying when we proclaim God's excellencies by holding our lives back from fleshly lust and by doing good deeds, even though they may slander us, unbelievers will see Christ in us, and God will use that to bring some of them into salvation, at which time they will shout God's glory. That's it. That's what I've been saying today. That's what Peter is saying. Live the life. Make your behavior excellent. I want you to look at this video. And then I'll instruct you when we get through.
I'm Officer Walcott, Rocky Mountain Police Department. I need to see your driver's license registration. You can't give me a ticket for honking a horn at a green light. Alright, so let me see your driver's license registration. Thank you, sir. All your information correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Alright, so I'll be right back with you. Sit tight. Please help me. <laughs> you can't give me a ticket for honking the horn at a green light. Sir. She should have gone. It was sir, green. Sir, get back in the car and calm down for a second, okay? I'm not going to give you a ticket, but the reason I stopped you is for acting like such a fool, okay? I don't know why you're acting like that, because I saw all those stickers on the back of your car. You don't need to be acting like that. Across in your window, I thought, I thought maybe you stole this car. So I was just checking out your information when it's that good and you're not getting a ticket this time, but if you would, just calm down for me. Drive safe. I hope nobody thinks you're driving a stolen car or wearing a stolen T-shirt. All right, let's pray. Father, we look to you for the grace that we might keep our behavior as a witness to your saving grace, that others can see you in us, Lord Jesus, and come to know you as we know you and glorify you. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity today to respond as the Holy Spirit is dealing with you. If you never come to that place of coming to Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would ask you and beseech you to do so today. If you're willing to turn away from anything that may not be pleasing to Him, that's repentance. And turn to Him in faith, believing He did everything necessary for you to be saved. Have your sins forgiven to have a place in heaven. That's faith in Him. Would you just step out and come forward? If you need to come and pray, you feel free to do so. As we stand and sing together.